Johnny Ward joins me this week. Now, Johnny is a travel blogger and a uh, world traveller, and he has travelled to every single country in the world. He talks about how he started off uh, teaching in summer camps and also teaching uh, English as a foreign language in Thailand, where he fell in love with the country. Um, and he decided to stay there, build his own house, and, of course, set up on this amazing adventure going to every country. He talks about the different cultures he's come across and the biggest challenges he has ever faced and his ideal plan to trek up Mount Everest. There's so much to learn from Johnny and you can listen to it right now and give us uh, our, your opinion on the show. Uh, email the team at trackbackpodcast.yahoo.com. Uh, we would love to hear from you and give us a follow at trackbackpod as well. It would mean a lot. This is Johnny Ward. <laughs> When I was reading an article about you, um, I was like, I've got to speak to this guy because, like yourself, I'm a big, you know, lover of travel. I mean, I've not done what you've done. I think I've got a better chance of writing my own Guinness World of Records book, um, you know, not doing what you're doing. But, Johnny, I mean, when did all this love for traveling start? Were you always a big fan as a young kid to, you know, go places and see amazing things? No, bro. Like, I, I grew up poor, so we didn't have that family that went places. We didn't have any money to go places. So I was just in Ireland. And it wasn't so much travel that inspired me as I got older. Like, I wanted to be free because I was stuck on the island. Like, I only left. We went on two family holidays in the 18 years that I was in Ireland. So, um, and they were driving holidays. that we didn't fly with no money to do that. So it wasn't so much travel as that I wanted to be free. So as soon as I got the opportunity, the day I finished university, I just left and never came home. And where was the first place that you went to? And were you a bit afraid of leaving home, you know, for the first time, going to a new place? Or were you just so, you know, eager to look at new places because you've been in this one place for a very long time? No, I wouldn't say I was scared to leave because I went out. Like, obviously, I'm Irish, but I went to university in England. So I'd already left home at 18, really, to do that. You know what I mean? Um, that was scary, for sure. 18, super young, to move out on your own, like, no experience of the world. That was scary. But once I'd done that for four years at, in England, um, moving abroad again wasn't so bad. And each summer um, at university, I worked on these special needs camps in the USA. So, like, that had given me... Again, experience with just going somewhere one-way flight, not knowing anyone. So then when I finished uni, I wanted to take a gap year, but I had no money. So I flew one way to Thailand again and moved there and taught English there because my mum had no money. I come from a single-parent family, so um, uh, my mum had no money to fund my gap year the way lots of kids uh, to have their family do that for them, obviously. Nor, nor should my mum have to pay for my travels at 22 either. Um, so I had no money to do that, so I, I had to work overseas if I wanted to see the world. Uh, so I started teaching English in, in Chiang Mai, in the north of Thailand. You know, I've actually done the same as you, um, Johnny. I went to teach English myself in Hong Kong not too long ago. Um, and it's a completely different environment to what you're used to. I mean, obviously, you're up for the challenge of, of, of going there and, 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 you know, trying to learn the language, trying... Me, myself, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a fussy eater. I was so used to, you know, um, the, the British culture, so it was hard to get used to the, you know, the, the, the Chinese culture. But do you find that it was in yourself to try, you know, when you went to Thailand, learn the Thai language, try the Thai food, meeting the people? Because you've already had the experience, as you said, going to England and... and 
and the US and having that experience away from home. So was it, but, but you know, compared to, to that, you know, the English and the American culture, it's kind of similar to the Irish culture. Uh, but when you go to Thailand, it's a completely different culture. So, I mean, what was your sort of initial reaction going into Thailand for the very first time? What were you expecting? Well, because I had no money. I'm a, in Thailand, obviously, I don't know what your salary was like in Hong Kong, but my salary was like... 400 quid a month or something so i was still broke but i was in another country so i was cool you know i was still i was used to being broke so it wasn't a problem but it um when my school that i was teaching english in offered well part of the job was that you could have free thai lessons in the mornings and obviously like with my restricted finances i had nothing better to do so i joined thai class every day three hours a day and monday to friday for months and months on end so i learned the language I also felt kind of compelled to do so. I think like I'm a guest in Thailand, even now to this day, when it's my base and I own property and stuff here. Uh, I kind of feel like it's my duty to speak some level, especially when you hear um, modern people moaning about immigration to their country. Some people's frustrations when people come to a new country and, and don't at least make an effort. So I felt a duty to make an effort and I've continued to study the language up to this day, actually. So um, it wasn't so much a case of, feeling motivated i felt no matter where i would end up i would i would certainly make an effort to learn the language and when you teach english at a language school in asia i'm not sure if you're in a language institution or an actual school so i was at a language institution a private enterprise so i worked four hours each evening and then all day on saturday so that gave me all morning free anyway and i don't want to be a bum just playing playstation and watching netflix i want to get out and about so i might as well have done that when it was free so i took the opportunity and it's it's kind of like in a country like Thailand, when you walk outside, you, you look at something, you immediately find it quite interesting because you've never seen it before. And you want to know more about that thing, don't you? You know, and it's kind of different. You know, if I, I could be from London myself, I'll go out and I'll see the London Eye and I'll think, you know, I, I've seen it before. I've seen it so many times. But if you go to a different country for the first time, you see something and you're immediately attracted to that. Thing. Did you find that when you were in Thailand? I hadn't left. I hadn't really seen the world. Like I said, I'd never been on holiday, like to Spain or anything as a kid. And I had those summers in the US. So for me, it was everything was brand new. And I wanted to live. I wanted my life to be an adventurous life. I wanted to live a cool life. And in this day, like that was this was 2007. It was 14 years ago. I was 22, 23. I'm 37 now. And this was pre-blogs, pre-Instagram, pre-YouTubers ruining everything. Everything was fresh to me. It was like virgin eyes. So elephants and palm trees and people drinking Coca-Cola out of little bags. And I'm blowing my mind. And I felt like I'm really living my life. I'm taking the opportunities that I'm, I'm blessed to have. Going back to learning the Thai language, what was your very first class like, um, like learning the language? Um, w w did you find yourself struggling at first or did you immediately take to it? No, I'm awful. Yeah, I studied French all the way up to university level. I'm terrible at it. Studied Spanish in Colombia for three or four months and I'm just terrible. So for me, like when I see, when I saw people in Thailand speaking fluent Thai um, with a tonal language, five different tones, and people will be like, I'd be like, how are you doing that? And they say, oh, I just picked it up. And I didn't pick up one word. I had to earn mine with hours in the classroom every morning. I didn't pick up a thing. What was it like trying to make friends in uh, Thailand? Because for me, um, you know, in my experience in Hong Kong when I was in the school, I actually find it quite easy to make friends because you'd have the kids and the staff who are immediately quite interested in, in you. They're fascinated by you. You know, somebody who's come from a different country and they want to know a lot about 
your culture. Did you find that in Thailand with, um, you know, the Thai people wanted to know a lot more about you and your culture and, and, and an island? Yeah, you know, now Chiang Mai, I'm in Bangkok actually right now, but um, back then I was based in Chiang Mai. And now Chiang Mai is one of the biggest hubs for digital nomadism in the world. I would say probably Bali and Chiang Mai are the two most popular places to base yourself as a digital nomad if you make money online. Um, but back in 2007, none of that shit existed. So the only people that were living there basically were English teachers. So it was a very small percentage, very small expat population. So for sure, people were really interested. And then when you're trying to speak Thai with them, it was a really nice, positive atmosphere. And people are, are, are grateful for you to make the effort and everything. So yeah, for sure. And I, like being Irish, I love Friday, Saturday nights in the pub. So meet, meeting people and when there was such a limited expat population, you're very inclined to make the effort with people. Um, both when you're first there because it's scary being in the big bad world on your own so you need to make the effort and then when you're a little bit more established hopefully you can be the person who helps someone else who looks a bit wide-eyed and scared and then you can invite them in from the other side so let's go into um your decision to start blogging um you made the conscious decision to travel to every single country in the world which is unbelievable um i couldn't do it well maybe once i've retired but uh, i mean i mean johnny what what was going through your mind making that decision wanted to see all the countries in the world obviously that's it's such a great you know decision um to do and such a, a you know a, a big mountain to climb so so what was what, what made you make that decision to want to see every country you know when I finished teaching English in, in Chiang Mai, I was still broke. Like I said, my salary was really low, but I'm not, I don't live a flash life. Even now when, when my blog's quite lucrative, I still don't live a flash life. Um, so I'd managed to scramble a couple of grand together uh, from my time teaching, even on that meager salary. Um, and at that time, like any foreigner or, or anyone backpacking in Southeast Asia would go straight to the Thai islands, right? Go full moon parties and all that stuff, Chumin and Bang Vieng and all that, which is still cool. I've done all that too later in later later years to come, being, being based in Thailand. But with the little money that I had, once my contract ended, I didn't go anywhere near the islands. I didn't go anywhere near Vietnam. I flew one way to Bangladesh and I was like, I want to go and see what's going on in Bangladesh. You know, no one's there. I want to see what story is there. So even back then, before I had my idea to go to every country, I was really interested in that. And in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, places that and people weren't going to then. Um, so it's always I've always kind of been interested in, in going to more obscure places and feeling like that old school energy of romantic travel, what, what people think travel is. But then they come and follow the tourist trail and get drunk in air-conditioned buses with even more white people and actually you're just on a gap year with other gap years, you know what I mean? Which is still fun, don't get me wrong. I do love that vibe sometimes when you just want to party or chill. But if you want to really travel, and I really wanted to travel, then you've got to go and seek that out. And you don't get that in Khao San Road in Bangkok, you know what I mean? You get that in, in Bangladesh, you get that in like inner Mongolia. And I saw so even with my limit of my money, I was going to countries like that. So then when I started my blog, I'd moved to Australia on a working holiday visa. Um, because I was getting a bit older, I was 27, I think, then that was 10 years ago, and uh, I didn't want to be like a broke bum. It had been fun, but I wanted to have some money in my pocket. It was like getting a bit old, living dollar to dollar. So I saved up like 20 grand in during that year in Australia. I had a sales job, I got paid a lot, good commission. So then, with that money, I had by that stage been all around Southeast Asia. I'd been to maybe 20 or 30 countries in Southeast Asia. It was kind of five years into my journey. 
and then I quit my job in Australia. I flew to Africa, and then I, I wanted to do that Cape Town to Cairo route with public with public transport. And I spent the best part of a year doing that. By that point, I was on forty nine countries, and there's roughly two hundred countries. So I was like, "Wow, I've kind of accidentally done a quarter of the world." I'm going to try to. At that point, I think I said, "I'm going to try to do a hundred countries before I'm thirty." Um, because I didn't know if I could afford to do every country in the world. It's really expensive to visit every country. Um, and then I did. I finished hundred maybe by the time I was twenty nine, I think. And then once I had hundred, I was like, right, I'm going to do them all. I mean, that's that's such a, an achievement, you know. When you said you wanted to do hundred countries by the age of of, of thirty, and you did it, you know, all by twenty nine, which is great. Um, you know, you mentioned traveling, which I've been. Well, it's quite interesting you mentioned that because would you class yourself, Johnny, as a person that? You know, before you go to a country, are you the type of guy that likes to do a little bit of research into what's there? Or are you just, yeah, you're the kind of guy that just goes to the country not knowing what to expect. Go there and see exactly um, the delights that that country has to offer. Uh, no, I'm, I'm so disorganized. Anyone, who, you know, I don't know if you follow my blog. For the, and anyone who comes on my trips can testify that it's kind of a beautiful chaos. And then you can only imagine then... Um, how disorganized it is when I'm on my own and don't have the responsibility of anyone. Your favorite thing about entering a new country? I mean, for, from your experience on your blogs, for every country that you've been to, what are you always taking aback by when you visit a brand new country? You know, like I don't know, I don't have the money to do it, afford to do it back then when I was finishing my every country stuff. If 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 it wasn't bad for the environment to be able to jump between continents as you're visiting every country in the world would be the coolest thing to do because you keep get you would keep getting that whoa completely new culture whoa completely new culture whoa completely new culture but because i was broke back then i would stay in a region for a year and try to finish that region so i would go out overland i would never fly for years on end i would just keep taking public transport buses 20-hour buses 40-hour buses to the next stop and in a continuous stream so it's the it's like the culture shock that i got addicted to but the culture shock was never that heavy um, because I was always going over land, you know what I mean? So it wasn't regularly that I would be in, like, Argentina and then Papua New Guinea, where you're like, fucking hell. It wasn't like that, because I would be in, uh, like, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. So the culture was still different every time, but not a massive shock, because you've only moved a few hundred kilometers each time. Um, but that's what I love. I love that feeling of, like, wow, what's going on here? Food, currency like local dress and you feel like this is mental and you just feel very privileged to be in that position like yeah you can't believe you're there especially like that's why i don't play like the violin about my upbringing sure it was tough but that upbringing makes me appreciate how lucky i am to be in like these weird corners in the world these obscure places i feel so lucky to be there yeah now each continent you've been to africa south america you know, Australasia, would you say they all have something unique to them? And do you think it's important that each continent does have something unique about them? I don't know, mate. I, 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 don't, I, I never really focused on this continent thing. I know a lot of people try to visit seven continents, um, but I feel like if you're in Central America, right, let's say Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, whatever, that's actually in North American continent. But if you're, I'd say their cultures are more akin to Latin America, which is South America. You know, if like the, the Costa Rican culture is more akin to like Venezuela or Colombia, and actually that's that's crossing continents equally, depending on your definition of, of continents. Like somewhere like Georgia is often considered part of Asia, but then that's a lot closer. Like Georgia is a lot closely more closely aligned with European culture 
than Asia, than Chinese culture, for example. So I feel like, no, it, it also depends how open the country is historically. You know, like Thailand historically was quite xenophobic, nationalistic, never um, colonized. Uh, and with, like, although some of those terms are, are quite negative and for sure they, they do hold negative connotations, because of that, they've preserved their culture very strongly, which is the, the benefit of, of that kind of xenophobia. Because obviously, I live here, I know the politics quite well here, for better or worse. But and, and through that nationalism, that jingoism, their culture has been very preserved, which is actually a beautiful side of that jingoism, although that carries a lot of not so nice sides to it as well. Um, so I wouldn't say it's on a continental basis. I think it's often how open the country is. Because then you go to a place like London or New York and they don't demonstrate what people would consider traditional English or American culture anymore because they're so multicultural, right? Whereas if you go to Turkmenistan or Eritrea, they are completely closed off to foreigners with dictatorship, leadership. They're very independent cultures, Bhutan. So I think it's not a, bit, a case of cultural divide is how open or closed the country is you know some of those countries are not even heard of i'm not gonna lie i mean i have not heard of half of those countries but um johnny i know and i've, I've read on your blogs as well you've climbed some of the biggest summits um in the world so i want to ask you do you have a certain summit story that is quite memorable to you that you want to talk about well yeah a few um there's a, it's not it's not one of the highest summits by any stretch but one time I was, we were building a library with my non-profit in, in Indonesia and we just finished the library and we went to camp, climb a volcano uh, to celebrate, finishing the library and have the open ceremony and all. The next day we climbed this volcano and I'm quite fit because I do a lot of endurance stuff. So I ran up the volcano before everyone to get to the top, help, camp, help set up camp and um, I was at the top of this volcano and I was looking over like this, looking over the edge. And there was like a big tuft of like right at the edge, a mound. And I stood on the edge to like look into the volcano, and it wasn't actually a tuft; it was just weeds growing out of the side of the volcano. And I fell into the volcano, oh, and it was maybe two hundred feet drop. And just as I was falling, I turned around and grabbed the roots that I'd stood on, and I'm just hanging there into the volcano, and they're like a movie, and the roots are like. <clears throat> ripping the two fittest people in the group behind me came up maybe three or four minutes later and, and pulled me out and saved my life <laughs> you weren't looking down was there lava at the bottom it was no it was just kind of sheer drop into rubble i i can't imagine how uh scary that must have been i mean for someone that you know is is, is quite fearless like yourself that was you know a, a scary experience that was scary and then I climbed the highest mountain in Australasia like 18 months ago with one of my best buddies and we had to like take a helicopter into base camp because the tribes were kidnapping and killing people. Wow. And so we bypassed these tribes. We climbed up this mountain. My mate was quite altitude sick and then we got helicoptered off base camp and we were both a bit delirious, sleep deprived and slept in two or three days for the summit attempt. And... Um, when we got out of the helicopter, like, we weren't thinking straight, and he got straight outside it, both of us, and we walked right to the back of the helicopter. And I didn't know, like, thinking about it, I'd only ever been in a helicopter once in my life. There's a blade at the back of the helicopter as well. We couldn't see it, and we're a bit like, whoa, whoa. And we walked up to it, no kidding, like th like three inches from the blade, and the pilot ran out and stopped us, and we could hear it going like, and it was like this close to my face but you couldn't see it because it was going so fast but I could feel his heat but I was like what's going on he pulled us away I'm like 
whoa, like we were two seconds from getting our head chopped off. You are a man of many wonders, Johnny, I've got to say. Um, I want to ask you, if you haven't climbed it yet, do you see yourself climbing it very soon? And that is Mount Everest. Yeah, I signed up last week for it, April 2023. So what kind of preparations do you feel you yourself i mean you've had experience climbing all these you know major mountains but what makes mount everest that much bigger of a challenge not just because it's the highest mountain in the world but what kind of you know things do you have to prepare physically and mentally for a challenge like that because it all depends on you know what time of year you go because it is very dangerous up there isn't it people have died on that mountain yeah yeah. people die every year um one thing about mount everest is i really really feel the need to defend um, the mountain from an expedition perspective. A lot of armchair fans, with, uh, uh, photograph went viral a few years ago of a queue to get up Everest because of this perfect storm, the weather window was very narrow and everyone had to try to stomach the same day, which is rare. And then there's a documentary on Netflix or Hulu or something about called Sherpa, about the Sherpas and the industry in Everest. And a lot of armchair fans sit at home unhappy with their lives saying like oh it's just a, Everest is just a rich person's play thing Any, anyone with money can do it and I just wish I was rich enough to say alright find out anyone who comments that pay for their expedition and be like let's see if you can do it because anyone who does Everest is actually a beast you're at the risk of death You're at, and more than that is if, if anyone's ever done like ultra endurance like 200 kilometer races or 500 kilometer races or cycled across countries or or continents or whatever you know that moment when you dig deep and you want to cry and you're in actual agony and you're questioning all your life decisions and then you have to choose whether to accept that pain and suffering and continue because you said you shouldn't quit or you quit right and everyone gets faced with that on everest in a, in a to a level that you've never experienced before and it frustrates me when i see people saying like oh it's just a rich person's play thing because it's not you have to be a beast anyone who does that is a beast so for me, like, I'm hoping to do continue to do a lot of endurance stuff. So it's another, what, 20 months away. I'll be doing a lot of, like, long, long-distance running and long-distance cycling, long-distance swimming and, like I say, cycling across countries and all this kind of stuff. All the way up for the next year, I'll just be doing that kind of stuff anyway. And then when it comes to maybe, like, three, four months beforehand, I'll just do specific Everest training, which will just be, like, clipping on 20, 30 kilos on your back and going up stair machines or whatever. Well, I did Ben Nevis about two weeks ago. I did Scarfell last week, and I'm doing Snowdonia in two weeks' time. No, you're not doing the you're not you're not doing the 24-hour one. No, I'm doing them kind of separate. I wish I did the 24-hour one, but I think that it would kill me. <laughs> so the effect of climate change. I want to know your opinion on this, uh, Johnny. Um, we all know it's a huge threat. Um, you know, people are talking about it all over the world, wanting people to make a change, make a difference. What's your opinion on this? Seeing all these amazing sites you've seen, I mean, what can people do to really prevent this? We don't want to see amazing sites like the Great Barrier Reef or the Great Wall of China or Everest, you know, crumble with this looming threat. Um, and as well, you, you went to the South Pole. Um, and um, I, I want to know as well, because I know the glazers, the, um, the ice glaciers, the uh, polar caps are down there as well. So, I mean, what's, what's your opinion on this? What can people do... Um, you know, to really prevent this. And did you get a little inkling about, you know, the threat when you were in the South Pole? Um, climate change isn't something that's at the forefront of, uh, of my psyche, to be honest. It's way above my pay grade. I feel 
And sometimes when I think about it, like I, I don't eat meat, for example, but that's from an animal rights perspective. Um, so I would not consider myself an environmentalist at all. Not to say that I, I, I don't care that much. I hope more considering I, I don't eat meat, which is a huge sacrifice. <laughs> so, you know, but, um, but what I would say though is I find it, I find it the same thing with not, with um, animal rights is you, the whole Gandhi cliche, you've got to be the change, right? So you can't make a difference yourself of course, because the world's full of people. But that's the shittiest attitude ever, because if everyone thinks of that, nothing ever changes. So you have to be the change that you want to see. So you have to put your money where your mouth is and make sacrifices and changing your fucking profile photograph to uh, like with a changed color that says climate change is real or something. You don't do anything and you're chowing down at McDonald's from the new generation. It pisses me off, you know? This idea that you can virtue signal by changing your profile photograph and upload an Instagram post, but don't actually make any, do anything that costs you any time, money, or sacrifice. You have to be willing to make sacrifices your same, the same way in the right direction. And, and this is what I struggle with, what I'm about to say is, trying not to be disillusioned, because for every burger I don't eat, for every milkshake I don't drink, it, the populations of China, Indonesia, Brazil, and uh, India, the rise of their middle classes does feel like you're you're pissing in the wind a bit because for every time that you make a good decision, there's a, a new middle class of 10,000 people making the same bad decisions that our culture also made 10 years ago. So it is tough, but you have to just remember that everyone needs to make a little change. Don't get disillusioned by that. And hope that there's people far smarter than I am that'll take charge of it. When you go to places in the world, is there you know, some places that you've been that you can significantly see an effect that climate change has had on that individual place? I wouldn't say, personally, I've seen that made. Um, just in the same way that anyone else does, every every summer and every winter, and you read the news and it's the highest summer and it's the lowest winter every, every year the seasons come around. And I just read something yesterday about... Uh, can't remember what it was something about the extreme weather obviously now it's the summer i just read something yesterday and, and it was all over again i was like oh well, yeah here we go again um i can't remember what it was i just was reading the newspaper yesterday but it was the same thing x whatever and the coldest x whatever I'm like oh god so your blog um it's incredible um one thing i'm really intrigued about is the photographs that you take as well so i mean what what makes that perfect shot i mean like when you when you when you when you write in the blog i mean the structure of it I mean, what exactly, you know, is is the layout for it? What 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 do you intend to show on it? Is it kind of like the, you know, the the photograph and also the description as well? All little other things you like to add in it. For a start, I'm a very unprofessional person, and I like to prioritize my life and the things that I want to do with my life come long before my business or my blog. And for example, like I've probably haven't written about 50 countries that I've been to. Obviously, I've been to every country and there's loads I've written about. Because if I'm in the moment, and loads of people always ask me about, oh, you should have done videos, you could be massive, you could have millions of followers here and there if you had done videos. And I would have been like, yeah, but I've got friends who are YouTubers, right? And their job is to look like they're having fun. And I obviously see them not having fun, cameras trying to look like they're having fun as they're traveling the world. Whereas I want to actually have fun traveling the world. So, so it's like, it's kind of like, you want to enjoy what's in front of you and not focus too much on, you know, getting that perfect YouTube shot or, or, or getting all those followers on YouTube. I, I can see where you're coming from with that. I don't know if you know any YouTubers, but like, yeah, they're they're having an awful time but at doing their job 
and their job is making them look like they're having a good time. And I feel it for a start, I would feel like a fraud um, because it's like, as soon as the camera comes on, it's, hey guys, da -da -da -da, and that weird, like they're in a group of people and we're all seeing them do this. Very narcissistic anyway. So for a start, I don't, I, I don't prioritize my blog or anything about my life. But one thing I do hope that it does is show that you can come from a shitty single parent working class background and do cool stuff as long as it shows that and also that you can make loads of typos and take shitty photos and still make enough money to be free and that's what i think i've done you know i don't have any final production value it's all a bit rough around the edges but whatever no learning more about how you you know wanted people to see your blog makes me appreciate it so much the fact that you know you've come from a, a single parent family and you've gone out and done all these amazing things now knowing more about that as well is is fantastic johnny i really really like it a lot um one thing uh, one of the last things i wanted to talk about something that really drew me to you i think i uh, think you know what i'm going to talk about but it's um your inc um astronomical achievement of rowing the second biggest ocean in the world um, the Atlantic Ocean. So, Johnny, um, I know that you um, did it alongside some quite big people, actually. Um, so, how did all that come about? Um, just serendipity, really. I, I was stuck in Thailand during COVID, and obviously, I mean, a lot of people have got a lot worse stories of what happened to COVID, losing loved ones and stuff, than I have. So, um, I feel guilty even saying, but it obviously completely stunted my life normally i'm doing cool stuff around the world and all of a sudden i just stopped my entire life and most of my income and just be based in one place and i haven't done that for 15 years so it's quite a bit that was a culture shock more than any of my travels so i was stationary for months and months and months and i've never done that before since i was a kid um so that's a cycle from from malaysia to to, to laos but within the thai borders for a few weeks i ran a few ultramarathons I was like trying to find adventures to do within Thailand and I did a lot of work so, and that was all cool but anyway I got an opportunity there was a group that were two crew members down to, who needed to people to row the Atlantic and normally I wouldn't be able to go offline for two months because of business or whatever and I'm building a house and, and it's kind of bad normally I couldn't go off line for two months because of the opportunity cost and the, 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 the lost revenue with uh, no travel anyway it was perfect opportunity to go offline for two months um because i don't have much to lose nothing's happening in the travel world so that was the the, the positive side of it for me normally it would be tough to, to justify so then i applied for it to for the uh to be a crew member and there's quite a lot of applications and that's when like I'm always extolling the virtues of having a blog whether you want to keep it as a diary hopefully you can turn it into a business whatever right I tell everyone that they should have a blog and when you get things like this like loads of people applied for that role and I was fortunate enough to be selected but for sure my blog and social media helped because I could help promote so for sure that helped me get elected not my um, not my stunning personality so I was very grateful for my blog at that time too and then I got selected and within six weeks I was doing sea survival courses in the south of England because I think maybe you read or heard that I can't swim or anything. so um, yeah I wasn't prepared at all for it but I was fit because I've been doing a lot of that like really ultra endurance stuff in Thailand so I was fit enough for it but from a, like a, a boat ocean background I had none so within six weeks I was back in the UK 
doing those courses. So how did those courses go? What exactly did you have to do for that? It's all kind of bullshit, to be honest, Callum. It's all just health and safety bollocks that you have to, like, tick a box. And here's if, you, if you're drowning, here's what you do. If your boat flips upside down, make sure you think of these things. But you're not in the water, you know, or you're only in the water briefly. So it doesn't actually teach you anything. But I think it means that if you die out on the ocean, they can be like, well, we did give them... Uh, it's all kind of bullshit, to be honest, Callum. It's all just health and safety bollocks that you have to, like, tick a box. And here's if, you, if you're drowning, here's what you do. If your boat flips upside down, make sure you think of these things. But you're not in the water, you know, or you're only in the water briefly. So it doesn't actually teach you anything. But I think it means that if you die out on the ocean, they can be like, well, we did give them... Uh... So you set off. Um, Where was it that you set off from? The Canary Islands, Canary Islands. So, I mean, first few days, how did that go? I mean, obviously, it, I mean, that's a big shock in itself. Um, and th there's so many things you need to take into consideration. I mean, um, before you set off, it's kind of the weather, what it's going to be like out there. Also, the wildlife that might be out in the Atlantic, because it's so big, isn't it? That it's the second biggest ocean in the world. So, I mean, what, what, what exactly was it like the first few days? What exactly did you have to do? Um, how are you feeling in yourself? It was just, honestly... A pretty brutal experience and um, well the first day after 24 hours our boat started to break down and we had to get rescued by the spanish coast guard so we didn't get off to a very good start and when they came to rescue us they, they smashed their huge motor boat into our rowing boat and damaged it further so it was leaking so then we got, had to get towed back to the canary islands get it fixed and we got stuck in this in fortaventura for a week to do that um, and during those first 24 hours before our boat broke down it was just awful mate like seasickness and the waves like smashing you in the face it was freezing cold two hours on two hours off for 24 hours and during the two hours off I'd be in a tiny cabin and you can't sit up like you're crouched over and I was just thinking wow I've made a massive mistake this is awful I can't do this and then we got rescued and I was kind of thinking thank God, the boat's fucked and the expedition's going to be cancelled and thank God for that, I don't want to have to go out again. And then they fixed it. And then a week later, we're, we're off again. So what made that decision to go back out? Because, you know, what you just said, that you weren't a fan of it. So what made you change your mind? What made you just want to do it? I just know what I'm like and I would have hated myself for the rest of my life. Do, do you see, it would have been a sort of once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah. And I really don't use those words lightly. I would have hated myself. I wouldn't have slept for like, I wouldn't have slept the whole night for years. I failed the highest mountain in South America, Aconcagua. It was really bad storms during our summit attempt. Um, and no one summited for a month because of this like freak weather, right? But I also didn't summit. And I went back the next year, thankfully, and, and summited. Um, but that year, that just played on my mind all year. And not even though, I couldn't even do anything about it and I just wanted to click my fingers and you should never wish your life away but I just wanted to click my fingers and get through to because you can only climb these mountains at certain seasons wait for the next year 12 months later for the season um, and I just wanted it to be the next year so I could try again um, and that was without it being my fault really although I still failed so if I had chosen not to go not to continue and then seeing the boys finish two or three months later I would have hated myself so as much as I hated the actual experience, I would have hated the experience of not finishing it more. So it was just the lesser of two evils. So halfway through, um, were there any bad weather experiences and did you have any close calls with some animals? Did they uh, 
make a short appearance? We never saw any whales. We saw loads of dolphins every day for the first few weeks, which was cool. Um, and the way, yeah, loads of bad weather. Waves like the size of like skyscrapers, and you're just on top of it, crashing in and going up like proper skyscraper. But you're just sitting, you can see them all around you. It's mental. Crazy. So, I mean, once you finished it, I, I, you know, expect you were proud in yourself of what you've achieved. You've you've rode the entire Atlantic, and did it kind of give you an inkling? To do another ocean, maybe the Pacific in the future, <laughs> not giving away any hint. I don't feel that proud. I don't feel that proud of, of it, to be honest, mate. Um, I feel a bit underwhelmed by the experience. I thought, um, for a start, mentally, I really struggled being stuck for months out there, like never ending, two hours on, two hours off, never sleeping more than thirty minutes for two months, not standing up for two months, um, obviously not showering or anything for two months. It was tough. Physically, it was fine because, like I say, I was quite fit, so I felt physically difficult at all. Actually, I, physical, physical difficulty, I would say it's like a three out of ten. Whereas the mental difficulty, I'd say it's a nine point five. I can't imagine anything more mentally challenging, and that was a real shock to me because I thought it was going to be a, a physical challenge. So, in terms of being proud, I wasn't that proud. I was actually kind of thinking like I used to think that anyone who rode an ocean was a beast. And now I realise you don't have you're not a beast to road an ocean. Anyone can do it. It's just suffering. Actually physically it's not very difficult. It's just a shit shitty experience that anyone can do. But you're not like some you don't have to dig really deep and, and physically challenge yourself. And I I hoped and, and, and wanted that deep physical challenge, but it wasn't that. So I didn't actually feel that proud when I, when, I, when I finished. I just felt relieved that it was over because it was like quite a miserable experience being stuck in the boat and stuff. But also, of course, I learned a lot of lessons. I had a lot of time to reflect on life and, and who I am and who I want to be and made and, and, and try, like thoughts about how to be the best person you can be. So of course, there was privileges and benefits from the experience. But generally speaking, it was quite a miserable experience. I was, it was just more relief that it was over. When yeah, was absolutely. Um, so, Johnny, what is next for you? What is the next big thing that you've got planned? Obviously, COVID's not going to get in your way. Um, so what, what, is, what is next? Uh, what am I doing next? Well, I'm in Thai quarantine. I'm locked in this little room at the moment. Um, I'm building a, a villa in the north of Thailand, so that's actually quite a big thing for me because I thought the road got delayed because of Brexit and COVID and blah, blah, blah. I thought I'd be back here to oversee the house build, but now they're six months in and I haven't even seen it yet. Um, and I've got all my money, so I've got to go up and see that see, everything's okay. <laughs> um, after that, uh, I've got a trip. I'm doing a charity trip. I'm organizing a charity trip to Tanzania to do the Serengeti Marathon to raise money for Parkinson's. My mum's got Parkinson's, so and 20 other people to Tanzania to, to walk the half marathon there. Then in December, in December I think we get married. Let's wait and see. The dates aren't confirmed yet. And then January, we're doing a school build for the Burmese refugee community in Thailand with my non-profit. Just take me to Australia and show me around, Johnny. Take me to Australia and show me around. I just want to hold a koala. That's all I want to do is hold a koala. That's that's then my life sorted. But um, uh, Johnny as well. It's gonna be the last. It's gonna be the last country to open by the looks of things, isn't it? It is. It is. But um, finally, if there's one place you've been to, one part of the world which means the most to you, somewhere you've been that really highlights more than anywhere else, and that 
you'll never forget your experience there. Obviously, it's a hard question because there's loads of countries you've been to, but if there's one that really stood out, what would it be for you? Well, there's two places, to be honest, mate. Um, number one is Chiang Mai, Thailand, right? So that when I was poor and just straight out of uni, that's where I was teaching English. It's where I learned to speak Thai. It's where I fell in love with Thailand and this and this kind of, like, different lifestyle to what most people live, like, living out of a backpack for a decade and all that, right? And then now I've got more money and I'm older. I'm going back to build my dream home there. So that really left an imprint on me. It's why I'm living in Thailand to this day, 15 years later almost. So Chiang Mai, Thailand is number one. But then from a travel perspective, um, there's a Yemeni island off the coast of Somalia called Socotra. Um, and Yemen was my second last country that I visited on that journey. Uh, my last country was Norway, which I've been saving for. Whereas when you're trying to visit every country, loads of them are really tough. Um, and Yemen was proving really tough because of the war. So I ended up hitchhiking on this Indian cargo ship for four days, um, leaving Oman and pulling into this Yemeni island, uh, Socotra. And that was and when I finally got off that boat, uh, I'd reached Yemen, my second last country, which for me was a huge emotional outpouring because I knew Norway was last. And like I say, anyone can go to Norway. So for me, that was the last difficult challenge of the ever the ten year every country thing. And that's why I run trips to Socotra and Yemen now because it holds uh, so much weight for me. I also think it's the most beautiful island in the world. It's crazy how beautiful it is and, and un, unruined by tourism. Although the UAE are up to all sorts of no good there at the moment. So I don't know how long it's going to be untouched. Well, before we wrap things up, Johnny, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. It's been great chatting to you about your experiences. And finally, um, if there is some advice you can give to an individual that really wants to get out and see the world, wants to see as many countries as they possibly can, Europe, um, Africa, South America, what advice can you give to them to go about it um, when it comes to traveling, saving money, um, finding places to stay, some of the little nicky knack sort of stuff? It's deeper than a nicky knack, man. It's quite confrontational and people might not like to hear it, but no no one wants to hear your sob story about why you can't do it. Life's hard. Get the memo. Like, don't, everyone, society wants to tell you that you can't do this because you're black. You can't do this because you're from a single parent. You can't do this because of this. You can't do that. If you're lucky enough to, to have internet access and speak English to understand this podcast, nothing is holding you back. Nothing. Don't focus on the things that are in your way. Anyone can do it. It's so true. I'm the most average dude out there. And I, I've, got a, I've got a pretty brutal backstory that I haven't spoken about online. But what am I going to do? Get my violin out? No. If you, want, if you want to have a cool life, go and grab it. That's it. Couldn't have said it better than that, Johnny. Well, my friend, thank you so much for appearing on the show. It's been great chatting to you. And good luck with the, the villa. Hope you don't go back uh, to see some parties there. <laughs> but I'll go back and bankrupt the villa. All right, mate. Thanks. Good luck, man. Thank you. Bye.